Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 33, Angolan Civil War of the Simpsons. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Fish when we fish. Get a handful of peanuts when we get a handful of peanuts. Not those peanuts. The ones at the bottom. (laughs) And today, I'll unfortunately be talking about Season 2, Episode 20, The War of the Simpsons, which was aired on May 2nd, 1991, two weeks after our last episode. And I'm going to be talking about Angola... As on May 1st, 1991, the day before War of the Simpsons was first aired, talks began in Bices, Portugal, to negotiate an end to the Angolan Civil War between the ruling MPLA and the forces of UNITA. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. OK, I'll start this week. Now, last week we had a lovely reply on Twitter from Yeardley Smith when we asked her about how certain lines are repeated when they're said by Bart and Lisa. And this week, one of the writers, Jay Cogan, who I know we've talked about before on this show, put out a tweet saying, Anyone have any Simpsons questions from the first couple of seasons of the show? It was a long, long time ago, but I'll answer what I can. And I replied... Is John Schwarzwelder a real person, or is he an elaborate conspiracy theory created by the other writers to hide their libertarian tendencies behind? Haven't had a reply. Funny that, isn't it? Yeah. But we will keep you posted, and should you wish to hear us talk about Jay Cogan himself, that was in episode number three, The Morris Worms Odyssey. Mm. And personally, I think not getting a reply only incriminates him further. Absolutely. Uh, Also, just a bit of admin that we forgot to mention in either of the last two episodes, Uh, we are now on Spotify. Although if you're listening to this in the first place, you're probably not listening to it on Spotify because we haven't told you we're on there. Mm. But if you'd like to do that, you can now. (laughs) So there's that, I suppose. Yep, that's how that works. To be fair, that's quite a big platform, so I'm, I'm glad we're on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if uh, any of you listeners at home are thinking, I bet Tom had to do that because Gareth couldn't manage, you're absolutely right. Because <laughs> I know where the feed is. Yes, and I had one job. <laughs> so, May 2nd, 1991, two weeks after Lisa's Substitute. Lisa's Substitute, what an episode. Mm. This episode. <laughs> anyway, the UK number one. As promised last time, it's a new one. Brought to you by Cher. Oh. It's her version of the Shoop Shoop song. Oh, from yeah. From the film Mermaids, in which she also starred, along with Bob Hoskins, Winona Ryder, and Christina Ricci, mm-hmm. this being the latter's first film role. This is one of Cher's periodic returns to relevance, though not quite on the same epoch-straddling scale as 1998's Believe, which at this rate we'll be talking about in eight or so years' time. Mm. The Shoop Shoop song has a much longer history than this particular charting alone. Written and composed by Rudy Clark, who appears to have written an absolute shedload of songs with the word fool in the title, and Got My Mind Set On You, as taken to number one in the US by none other than George Harrison in 1986. Although the original was recorded by James Ray in 1962, so it's been done. It has. 
It's in his kiss, as it was originally titled, had enjoyed at least five notable previous versions. The first of which was recorded and released by Mary Clayton after it was turned down by the Shirelles. Okay. And that version came out in 1963, which is the year in which the film Mermaids is set. Okay. The song was brought to further prominence in versions performed by Betty Everett, Ramona King, Linda Lewis, and, would you believe, Linda Ronstadt, who we will see collaborating with Barney Gumble in Season 4, Episode 9, Mr. Plough. Nice. Before Cher recorded it. Mm-hmm. Her version was arguably more popular in the UK than the US, with it peaking at 33 on the Billboard Hot 100 over there, but becoming Cher's first UK number one for 26 years Blimey. since I Got You, Babe, with Sonny in 1965. Nice. It's such a, it's just such a piece of fluff, that song. Oh, absolutely. Just such a throwaway piece of nothing. Oh, well. <laughs> The US viewership for the episode was a Nielsen of 11.6, which is around 10.8 million households, but was again beaten to the semi-coveted title of Fox's most watched programme of the week by Tom? Married with children? No surprises here. Yep. It was married with children. Uh, the production number of this episode was 7F20, and this episode was written by, yes, you guessed it, after what feels like a long time, he's back. Your favourite of mine, ladies and gentlemen, he doesn't exist... It's Mr. John Schwartzwelder. Yep, he definitely doesn't exist, and this, uh, this episode is just further proof. Absolutely. His lack of existence was first discussed by us in <laughs> episode 5, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. Mm-hmm. The chalkboard gag is, I will not do anything bad ever again. <laughs> Which I do feel is a bit of an overreaching promise by Bart there. Yeah, I like the ambition though. Absolutely. You know, people always tell you to stretch yourself. It's, you know, he's at least practising that there. Uh, the couch gag is Homer gradually squeezing the rest of the family off the couch until he has it to himself. Oddly, they don't seem that upset by it. Smile's no. still in place. So what happens in this episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to have a house party, as highlighted by the presence of horse doovers. <laughs> Homer seems absolutely unaware of the arrangement, but must surely have been told previously about it. And Lisa and Bart reluctantly go to bed, where Bart opines that you can't have any fun and I'm not touching that joke with a barge pole. (laughs) Marge's sophisticated leanings and Homer's rather cruder delights do not make for harmonious hosting. And once Ned's cocktails of drunken and non-complaining Homer... By the way, I did try to find a cocktail with three shots of rum, a jigger of bourbon, and just a little dabarilla of crumb de cassis for flavour. Mm-hmm. But I had no luck. So if anyone knows one, please drop us a line on the normal channels, as I quite like blackcurrant liqueur. Hmm. Anyway, and Barney has been maced <laughs> with what may be a new type of mace that really hurts. The party ends in disaster when Homer examines Maud Flanders' cleavage in way too much detail, but this is far from his only indiscretion. Yeah. The next morning, when a hungover Homer finally awakens, Marge is at Tether's end and goes to church, demanding that Homer, for starters, apologise to Bart for scarring him for life. Although, as it turns out, Bart is well aware that Homer's behaviour can be explained by his being wasted (laughs) and that it hasn't changed the amount of respect Bart has for him which Homer mistakenly takes well. (laughs) At church, Marge signs them up to Reverend Lovejoy's suddenly announced by an absolutely massive sign and never again mentioned couples retreat in an attempt to repair their rift. And all of a sudden, 
we get all the plots at once. Hmm. The retreat is at Catfish Lake, which gives Homer a tempting distraction. And the absence of parents, and one very scared babysitter, leads to Grandpa looking after the Simpsons' kids. Although who is looking after who is at least up for mild debate. Bart immediately takes advantage by claiming he's allowed to do a lot more than his parents would approve of. Homer stops at a service station on the way to the retreat, and hears about the legend of General Sherman, a gigantic catfish that makes the appropriately named lake its home. They say he weighs over 500 pounds, and he's certainly never been accurately photographed. Homer vows to catch this leviathan, but has the small matter of saving his marriage to take care of first, at Lovejoy's most popular retreat yet, featuring three whole couples, one of whom go from Queen of the Harpies <laughs> to fully reconciled in about 30 seconds. That's a brilliant bit. And the second of whom are Ned and Maud, who have absolutely no real problems whatsoever. In contrast, Marge's list of Homer's shortcomings lasts an awfully, awfully, awfully long time. And in the meantime, Bart is enjoying R-rated films and three different types of chocolate ice cream, whilst Lisa has a moral crisis over their treatment of Grandpa. Just to stick in there, now, I, I hadn't made a note of this, and I was quite surprised to see it when we were watching, as I, I'd got the McBain clips mixed up. But mm. this is the one with his hand cannon. Yes, yes. And by book. Yes, yeah, um, I, I, I love it. Have you seen on YouTube someone's stuck together all the different McBain clips and they make more or less a coherent plot? Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, check that uh, out. Vi visionary writing and uh, visionary for somebody to bother sticking them all together. So, mm. Excellent. Homer attempts to sneak out and catch the general, but Marge convinces him that their marriage is more important. Unfortunately, Homer then makes the mistake of picking up an unsupervised fishing rod, which Sherman grabs leaving Homer with little choice but to ride out the catching process. Or, you know, just give up and go back to bed. Mm. This leaves Marge further humiliated as she has no one to do trust falls with. But eventually, after a huge war of attrition, Homer does the impossible and lands the catfish. Meanwhile, Bart has thrown a party, with the selling point that the only adult is frail and old. Even Otto attends, looking for chicks over... eight? Really? <laughs> Bear the move past that quickly. Yeah. The chaos and mess leaves Grandpa in tears on the couch, and even Bart is finally moved to start cleaning up at speed. Homer returns to shore to find Marge at the pier. Marge explains that General Sherman has become a symbol of Homer's selfishness, and Homer returns the fish to the lake, eschewing fame and breakfast for their marriage. <laughs> and Marge takes the gesture with the gravitas it sort of deserves, kickstarting the reconciliation process and sending them homeward in better ground. And the house? Bart and Lisa just about get it sorted in time for Homer and Marge's return, although Grandpa reveals he manipulated them with his ability to cry on cue, irreparably damaging Bart's trust in the elderly. For the close, we cut back to the service station, where they now tell the tale of the only man to come near to catching General Sherman, who went by the name of Homer. Seven feet tall he was, with arms <laughs> like tree trunks. His eyes were like steel, cold, hard had a shock of hair, red like the fires of hell. And so Homer gets his fame and his marriage, just not breakfast. Indeed. I think it's a bit of a nothing episode this time, <laughs> to be honest. Well, um, which is even more noticeable after Lisa's substitute. Yeah, well, for me, it feeds into the Schwarzwelder conspiracy, because if people aren't familiar with it, there's this idea that the Simpsons writer from the early days, a guy called John Schwarzwelder, 
this libertarian, gun-toting, right-wing nut. He doesn't exist. There is one photo of him, and he's be- he's been recorded in a phone call once, and he immediately says it's not him. So my conspiracy theory is that the other writers have invented him so that if they come up with anything that's a bit dodgy, like having a plot line where Homer Simpson looks down a woman's dress, or indeed Otto says any chick's over eight, you give that to this fictional writer and jobs are given. So you've saved your reputation and just blame it all on this one guy. I think it's a sound theory, and like like we say, we've had no proof to the contrary. No, so um, you know, prove us wrong. Yeah, prove yeah. us wrong. Um, you can't. No, no. Uh, Homer's behaviour hits a new low here as well, as we've alluded to a few times. Um, yeah. In Homer's night out, he was part of a group, and I don't think his actions were really that. I get. I guess this that's through today's prism, though. His actions there are not. That bad? Yeah, he 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 has a dance with uh, with the stripper, but I don't know. They, they were just a bit more bold because there is, well, they they zoom in on Maud's chest. There's no other way to put it. It's you know, blindingly obvious. We get a very uh, off character Ned as well as we were um, discussing. So he's the the instigator in many ways with his very alcoholic cocktails which yeah. does not seem that this is the the Ned Flanders who will later go to AA because he's had one schnapps yes yes and Landers is a boring old biddy yes yeah that, <laughs> that great line so I yeah but I, I mean I've said this before Ned becomes more Ned as time goes on yeah yeah but Ned and Maud at the party are just way off because they are puritanical Christians. Flanders would not know how to mix cocktails, and Maud would not be wearing what she's wearing. Yeah. We also picked up on, well, when I say we, I mean Tom, I don't deserve any of the credit for this. The fact that Dr. Hibbert, for the first time, is seen not laughing, which Mm. really adds to the gravitas of the situation. By the end of the party, you know, you, you know you're on unfamiliar territory. It's it's not going to be one of the, the sort of all-out funny episodes. No. Um, but it just doesn't really seem to do much. I don't really... I guess I don't really care what happens in this one. Mm. It's, you know, the, the stakes just seem... Bizarrely, despite the fact that, that Homer and Marge's uh, marriage is on the line, the stakes never seem that high. No, no. And this is, this is essentially the debut of the perma-drunk sort of jerkass Homer that we'll see a lot more of from seasons 11 through 14. But mm. really, up until then, any other time we see him drunk, he's going to be largely good-natured. Yeah, also with the jerkass Homer, he is also sort of indestructible to a superhuman-type level. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that writing and characterization is a is a response to Peter Griffin, essentially, with the, the writer's... Obviously, not not being in the the best of uh, moods with each other in between Family Guy and The Simpsons, but yeah. So yeah, the, the, in general, there's a lot of things off about this episode, and yeah. it, it adds to the general malaise around it from my point of view. Anyway, um, although oddly, after me mentioning what a good episode Deep Deep Trouble would make last time, that's basically Bart's subplot. Oh, okay. So he, he has a party, trashes the place. The only difference being he's able to clean up before Homer and Marge get home. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so there we go. Uh, and refreshing to see Grandpa get the upper hand, because we really won't be seeing that very much going forward. So, character debuts. Mm-hmm. General Sherman. 
Yes. The gigantic legendary catfish, 100 years old if he's a day, whose pursuit Homer is distracted by. Now, I did joke to Tom that I reckoned he probably had a huge backstory and character arc in the Simpsons comics, and no. Oh, that's a shame. And I don't believe he reappears in the show in any capacity, which is kind of understandable given he's a fish. (laughs) But in the modern era when even Leon Kompowski and Mr Bergstrom have made returns to the show, it's a little strange to be seeing a one-and-done here. Hmm. Still, there's a further, more auspicious debut here, as we also meet Snake Jailbird. Oh, was this his first one? It was, yes. Okay. Uh, Also variously known as Deep Breath. Chester Snake Turley in Season 22, Episode 6, The Fool Monty. Albert Knickerbocker Aloysius Snake in Season 25, Episode 17, Luca Dollar. Professor Jailbird in Season 17, Episode 13, The Seemingly Never-Ending Story. And Detention Bird at some stage, presumably when a child but originally called by the much simpler moniker of just Snake Mm. by his departing cellmate Sideshow Bob in Season 3, Episode 21, Black Widower, and roll on that episode because it is class. (laughs) It is. Snake is a career criminal, having become disillusioned with archaeology after Mo stole a cachet of antique coins that Snake was waiting to donate to Springfield Museum. He decided to take out his rage on convenience store clerks, making him responsible for a great many of Arpu's very, very great many shootings. It's worth stating that whilst he isn't Springfield's only criminal by a long, long way, at the very least, Mr Burns is likely to have committed more fraud and been responsible, at least in the background, for more murders. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Homer's rap sheet is probably up near Snake's, at least in terms of numbers of crimes. He is the iconic one. In the same way as there are a lot of drinkers in Springfield, but Barney is the poster child for drinking... Snake is brought into episodes when a criminal is needed. Now, this means that his level of criminality is on a rubber band. He is always exactly as dangerous and violent as he needs to be to suit the script. It's usually armed robbery and or car theft, though. Very rarely anything worse than that in canon. Although he will be executed for a third strike in Season 10, Episode 4, Treehouse of Horror 9. Hmm. This is a bit unfair, because this is nowhere near this episode, but I am going to ask you, just out of interest, if you can remember what the three crimes were. Oh, um, he torched an orphanage, he blew up a bus full of nuns, and his third strike is... Oh, God, what does he do? I'm already very impressed with this. Yeah, can't remember. Can't remember the third strike. His third strike is smoking in the Quickie Mart. Oh, right. Oh, yes, of course it is. Yeah, but you're quite right about the previous two. Uh, arson of an orphanage and blowing up a busload of nuns, though he does claim that was in self-defence. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been confronted by a busload of nuns, I think that's, a, that's an easy one to buy. Despite all this, he's a good father to his son, Jeremy, <laughs> uh, who in Simpsons tradition is essentially a small version of him. Of course he is. And to Little Bandit, his beloved car. His relationship with which is explored in more detail in Season 9, Episode 9, Realty Bites. For now, I'll just say, for the avoidance of doubt, that she needs premium, dude! (laughs) Premium! (laughs) Now, you see, talking about the rubber band again, that's one episode where he becomes entirely homicidal, as he would have happily killed Homer to get his car back. Hmm. He also has an on-again, off-again relationship with a police officer called Gloria, which has never led to any conflicts of interest ever, of course. Okay. We also get to see much more 
of Maud Flanders than we've had before or wanted to. Mm -hmm. We discussed her in episode 19, Dead Web Page Society. It's worth noting that this is the start of Homer's crush on her, which would continue to be referenced very occasionally, right up to the point where he was directly responsible for her death. Yeah, terrible. Stay tuned. <laughs> but maybe miss that one. Mm. Tom, did you know, songs at the party include Dusty Springfield's The Look of Love, mm -hmm. sadly not the ABC song of the same name, <laughs> Casey and the Sunshine Band's That's the Way I Like It, and Glenn Campbell's phenomenal single Wichita Lineman. Oh, was it? Yeah. Uh, but not these Animal Men's fantastic cover thereof, as, come think of it, that won't be released for another six years at this point. Okay. But we also hear Tom Jones with It's Not Unusual. Mm -hmm. And we'll be seeing him surprisingly soon in Season 4, Episode 7, Marge Gets a Job. I'm pretty sure he performs that song then. But how can you be sure? Well, you'll just have to keep listening for another 18 to 20 months. Yeah. When Homer rows back to shore after defeating General Sherman, he has two intact oars. When we'd already seen him break one over General Sherman's head. Oh no. What are we meant to believe? That this is some kind of magic oar? <laughs> Boy, I hope someone... Etc, etc. Yep. Also, at the very end of the episode, well actually not quite the very end, when General Sherman is returned to the lake, he pops up and winks while we see Homer and Marge embrace in the background. Matt Groening hated that. I'm not surprised. And he uh, he lobbied to get it removed mm. uh, and clearly failed. Yeah. Well done, it, Matt. Because it's, it's cartoony and rubbish. And finally, Marge uses the Mexican hat dance to drown out an argument that she and Homer are having. This music has been used to drown something out before. The clandestine conversation between Homer and his demoxidil hookup in Season 2, Episode 2, Simpson and Delilah. Mm, good stuff. So there we go. That's all I've got on that. Mm -hmm. And now from the War of the Simpsons to War of a very different kind. Yes. Right. So Angola. Angola is a country in southwest Africa, bordered to the north by the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formerly of a much shorter name, which was Zaire, to the east by Zambia and to the south by Namibia, a country that used to be run by neighbouring South Africa. And the importance of that will become apparent later. Its capital is the port city of Luanda, which lies to the north of Angola's Atlantic coast. Historically, the region was part of the Kingdom of the Congo, spelt with a K in English. Oh, okay. Not the uh, more traditional C that we know these days. I think, I think they've changed it to a C to differentiate it between, you know, the old kingdom and the current countries that bear that name. Okay. Now, I, I just need a bit of clarification on this. So there's the kingdom... Yep. Which is Congo, with yep. a K. Kingdom of Congo, with a K. Yep, there's the new um, the new country, mm -hmm. the newer country, Democratic Republic of Congo, with a C. Yep. In which one of those did they drink on bongo? <laughs> uh, I thought that was coming. <coughs> Everyone's favourite, slightly racist soft drink. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> oh, terrible for your teeth as well. Is it? Yeah. Oh, right, oh, okay. God. That's one of the most sugary things I've ever drunk, I think. Oh, right, okay. So... So moving on from Umbungo, the Kingdom of the Congo was founded around 1390 AD and was independent until Europeans showed up. The first Europeans in Angola were not one of the major colonial players, but the Portuguese. Now, when we talk of colonial empires, ones like the Spanish, French or indeed British come to mind. However, the Portuguese Empire was one of the world's longest lasting, not officially coming to an end until 1999 when Macau was returned to China. 
See our last episode for more on that. The Portuguese first reached Angola in 1482, when the explorer Diogo Cao became the first European to explore the Congo River. With him, he took a bunch of stone pillars called pedraus, each one topped with the coat of arms of Portugal, the very same coat of arms that's on their flag today. And even though the stone pillars are over 500 years old, they are still there where Cao left them. Initially, relations between Portugal and the Kingdom of Congo were very cordial. Cao even left a few of his men there, and in exchange a few Congo nobles went with Cao back to Portugal. Both sides could provide what the other wanted. The Portuguese had technology and guns, and the Congo had ivory, mineral wealth and people in the form of slaves. Relations between Portugal and Congo were so good that in 1485, the king of the Congo, Nzinga Anakuwu, converted to Christianity and adopted the title João I, in tribute to the king of Portugal at the time, who was João II. The history of the Kingdom of Congo was marked by episodes where the ruling family would fight each other for power. After João I died in 1506, his son Alfonso Mavemba Anazinga inherited the throne, but he was soon challenged for it by his half-brother Mapanzu Akitima, and they fought a pitched battle at Mapanza Congo, which was the capital of Congo at the time. Alfonso won, and attributed his victory to heavenly visions of St James and the Virgin Mary. This helped to cement Christianity in the kingdom. Around 1561, the king of Congo, Diogo I, died, and the Portuguese killed his successor, hoping to replace him with Alfonso II, who was more sympathetic to them. This act did not go down well at all in Congo, and it led to riots that saw many Portuguese killed. Congo cut off ties with Portugal, stopping the slave trade. Alfonso II was killed in turn by his brother while attending mass, and he became Bernardo I, and Bernardo quietly allowed Portuguese traders back in. Portuguese settlement in Angola became official in 1575, when, with the blessing of the Congo king Alvaro I, the nobleman Paulo Diaz de Nove arrived with hundreds of colonists to found the city of São Paulo de Luanda. São Paulo was Portuguese for Saint Paul, otherwise known as Paul the Apostle. He's a very important figure in early Christianity. It's said that he had a vision of the resurrected Jesus who blinded him for three days, and he would go on to write many of the books of the New Testament. No surprises then that São Paulo in Brazil has the same etymology, having been founded by the Portuguese just 20 years earlier. In fact, despite being on either side of the Atlantic Ocean, the two cities were tightly linked by the Portuguese flavour of the Atlantic slave trade. Now, there's a great exhibit in the Museum of Slavery in Liverpool that demonstrates how it worked. Now, what the British would do is this. So traders would load up their ships with trade goods, sort of furniture and the like, little trinkets, that sort of thing, then set sail for Africa, perhaps the Gold Coast, modern-day Ghana. Once there, they would trade the goods for slaves, or just kidnap people. They would then sail across the ocean, where, of course, the slaves would endure atrocious conditions, and sell the slaves in the Americas. They would then load their ships up with goods produced in the British colonies, such as rum, sugar or tobacco, then set sail for home. Once there, they sold all their new world wares before starting the process again. By doing this, they made obscene amounts of money. In fact, many of Liverpool's more grandiose buildings were financed by this trade. The slave trade worked in much the same way in the Portuguese Empire, but the slaves were taken from places such as Luanda and taken to Brazil to work on plantations. Needless to say, this trade was extremely profitable for Portugal, and Congo was able to provide plenty of slaves by winning wars and expanding their territory to the east. Sort of similar to what the Aztecs would do, whereas the Aztecs would uh, sacrifice their slaves to their gods, uh, the people of Congo uh, sold them to Portuguese slave traders. Okay. Which is nice. 
you know, a little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> Alvaro tried to westernise Congo, introducing a Portuguese-style nobility and renaming the Panzer Congo to São Salvador, which is Holy Saviour in Portuguese. The status of São Salvador caused tensions between Portugal and Congo, as Alvaro sent his emissaries to Rome to persuade the Pope to allow him to nominate the city's bishops. Instead, the Pope dished out this privilege to the King of Portugal. I still think that's saying something when you have uh, an African kingdom sending emissaries to the Pope in Rome. Yeah, well, for the time, certainly. Yeah, exactly. So over time, relations between Portugal and Congo soured. The Portuguese hired African mercenaries called Imbangala to expand their colonial territories. They attacked the region of Kazanze in 1617, as runaway slaves were granted sanctuary there. Congo fought back, and in 1624 they agreed to attack Luanda alongside the Dutch, who they had promised gold and ivory. However, the king, Pedro II, who organised the attack, died before it could be carried out. He was replaced by his son Garcia I, who was a staunch Catholic and did not want to attack alongside the Protestant Dutch. The next 17 years saw further internal struggles in the Kingdom of Congo, and in 1641 the Dutch attacked Luanda and took it in an almost bloodless battle. The Dutch had also taken Pernambuco in Brazil, so they had Luanda and an area of Brazil, and they pretty much took over the Portuguese Atlantic slave trade for a short time, allying with and purchasing slaves from Congo. In 1648, the Portuguese retook Luanda and cast the Dutch out. So it was a very short little stint that the Dutch had there. Yeah, they were just just keeping it warm, really. (laughs) So in 1665, the Portuguese engaged the forces of Congo in the Mubuila, killing King Antonio I. This was followed by a succession crisis, and Congo descended into a civil war that lasted for nearly 40 years. It came to an end in 1709, when the forces of King Pedro IV took control of Sal Salvador. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, rule of Congo was fairly tumultuous, with figures from various royal households vying for control. Throughout this time, Portugal maintained control of Luanda and continued to trade from there, with the slave trade being officially abolished in 1839. The late 19th century saw the scramble for Africa, where the European powers, including the powerful newcomer Germany, vied for control of pretty much the whole continent. The borders were decided at the Berlin Conference in 1884, chaired by Otto von Bismarck, no less. At the conference, Portugal made a case to be granted land to join Angola to its territory in the southeast of Africa, that being Mozambique. They didn't get it, but for the first time the borders of Angola and Mozambique were drawn out on the map. Congo remained independent until 1888, when the king, Pedro V, voluntarily made it a vassal state of Portugal. This held until 1914, when there was a revolt against the Portuguese, and the Portuguese declared the abolition of the Kingdom of Congo, and established direct colonial rule over Angola. And this was the status quo until 1951. Portugal was dominated by the fascist dictator Antonio de Oliveira Salazar, who ruled from 1932 until his death in 1968. Now, if the name Salazar sounds familiar, then it should, because J.K. Rowling used it for the character Salazar Slytherin. Now, they just wanted, like, an evil sort of snake-sounding name, so she went for Salazar. I think a Salazar is one of the bosses in Resident Evil 4 as well. Ah, okay. Didn't know that. Good knowledge. So in 1951, Salazar remodelled the Portuguese national dictatorship into the new state, and Angola and Mozambique went from being Portuguese colonies to actually being part of Portugal. 
So it's like you go into Southwest or Southeast Africa and you are in Portugal. That's an interesting move. Mm -hmm. I would imagine it didn't stick. Uh, No, no. But it also went against the trends of the time, as many other African countries were winning their independence from their former colonial masters. You know, plenty plenty of uh, former British colonies became independent roughly that time. So the 50s and 60s saw the rise of armed guerrilla groups who demanded independence for Angola. And they've got some quite stunning names. So in 1956, the MPLA was formed. And all the names are Portuguese, so I'm giving you them in English. So the MPLA are the popular movement for the liberation of Angola. And five years later, the FNLA was founded. And they were the National Front for the Liberation of Angola. So the names are a bit... People, Judean People's Front, People's Front of Judea. We are seeing a lot of that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they were followed in 1966 with the forming of UNITAR, which is the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola. So together they fought against Portugal in a war that Portugal remembers as the Colonial War, but Angola remembers as the War of Liberation. And this war continued until 1974, when the Carnation Revolution in Portugal removed the military government there and the country began transitioning to democracy. The war was unpopular in Portugal, and the end of it saw tens of thousands of Portuguese people evacuated. The MPLA, FNLA, and UNITAR signed the Alvor Agreement, which meant that they agreed to take over the running of the country as a coalition government. Oh, I predict trouble ahead for that. Didn't last. Lasted a few weeks, maybe. And Angola soon descended into civil war once again. And the Angolan Civil War is one of the longest in recent history, starting at independence in 1974 and not properly concluding until 2002. It was extremely complicated, so as well as the three internal factions, Cold War influences were present. So the MPLA aligned itself with the Soviet sphere, receiving aid from East Germany and Tito's Yugoslavia. They also had help from Castro's Cuba, who sent thousands of troops to help in the fighting. The MPLA leader, Agostino Nito, met with Che Guevara in 1965. So anyone's at all familiar with Che Guevara knows that he would go around the world trying to help out in armed revolutions. I think, I think he was killed in Bolivia doing that, if my memory serves me rightly. So on the other hand, the FNLA and UNITA were aligned with the USA, receiving American support covertly through the CIA's Operation IA Feature. However, the Senator Dick Clark found out about it and severely reduced it by passing the Clark Amendment. The MPLA declared Angola independent as the People's Republic of Angola, with Nito as president. Shortly after, the FNLA and UNITA declared Angola independent as the Democratic Republic of Angola, with their leaders Holden Roberto and Jonas Savimi as co-presidents. So in the opening phases of the war, the MPLA took Luanda and drove the FNLA and UNITA towards their strongholds in the south of the country. Then, two other major African powers got involved. Namibia at the time, which was on the southern border with Angola, remember, was under the control of apartheid South Africa. And they didn't much fancy a Soviet-aligned power on their border, and they sent thousands of troops into Angola to fight the MPLA. Also to the east was Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Their leader, Mobutu Sisi Soku, was also anti-communist and supported the FNLA and UNITA. Together, they fought back against the MPLA, taking various provincial capitals. And that's when the MPLA received reinforcements in the shape of two Yugoslav warships and 18,000 Cuban troops. Oh, 
So they fought back and cemented their control of Luanda. And following this, the South African troops pulled out. But you see how this is the opening stages of the war, and already it's so complicated. <laughs> you've got you've got three internal factions, and you've got people from all over the world, all invoking the Cold War. So in 1979, the MPLA leader Nito died, leaving Jose Eduardo dos Santos as his successor. He took the fighting to Namibia, invading in 1980. This brought South African troops back into the conflict, where they remained until 1987. In response to this, the MPLA received even more support from the communist world. The number of Cuban troops there reached 40,000 in 1985, and the Romanian leader, Nicolae Ceausescu, remember him from our first proper episode? Absolutely. How could I forget? Mm -hmm. He sent 150 military personnel to help the MPLA establish an air force, and the Soviet Union sent billions of dollars worth of aid to the MPLA. Meanwhile, Savimbi, the UNITA leader, courted the support of American President Ronald Reagan. In 1986, he met Reagan and was promised $25 million of US aid, which included the supply of surface-to-air Stinger missiles to counteract the MPLA's air force. 1988 saw the inconclusive Battle of Quito Cannavale, the largest battle on African soil since El Alamein. Following this battle, all sides began to start talking, with the MPLA, UNITA, Cuba and South Africa holding talks in Geneva and New York. A ceasefire came into effect on the 8th of August, following the signing of the New York Accords. These accords stated that all foreign troops were to leave Angola, and that Namibia was to become independent from South Africa. The ceasefire didn't last long, as the US continued to fund UNITA and the MPLA leader Dos Santos insisted that the only way to peace was the temporary exile of the UNITA leader Savimbi. But... With Namibia independent, the MPLA no longer had to face a threat from South Africa. It attempted to reform, abandoning Marxism and Leninism in favour of multi-party democracy. On May 1st, 1991, the day before War of the Simpsons first aired, Dos Santos and Savimbi flew to Lisbon for talks. These talks ended in the signing of the BICES agreements, also called the Estoril agreements, because, you know, Estoril is cooler, Grand Prix and that. Yes, yes. That Oh, yes, of course, that's the Portuguese Grand Prix circuit. That's yeah. what I know it from. Exactly. See, the listeners may not know this, but I, I only know history through Formula One. <laughs> so if there is a Formula One link, then, you know, I'm all over it. Yeah, yeah. So the BICES agreements were signed on May the 31st, 1991. And they set the stage for a presidential election on September 29th, 1992. Dos Santos came out top with 49.5% of the vote, while Savimbi won 40%. As no candidate received over 50%, a second round of voting was required. However, Savimbi complained that the result was unfair, citing various irregularities. On October 31st, the UNITA Vice President, Jeremias Chitunda, was sent by Savimbi to negotiate the terms of the second round of elections. However, government troops in Luanda responded by killing over 10,000 opposition supporters in what has become known as the Halloween Massacre. Chitunda himself was dragged out of his car and shot in the face. And with that, the civil war between the MPLA and UNITA was very much back on. UNITA unexpectedly took control of many cities, and the MPLA engaged in ethnic cleansing of the Bakongo and Ovimbundu people. The two sides continued to fight throughout the early 90s, but the new international order without the Soviet Union was beginning to turn against UNITA. President Clinton issued an executive order stating that UNITAR was a continuing threat to the foreign policy objectives of the US. 
The Lusaka Protocols of 1994 were another attempt at peace, but once again they failed, despite being chaired by Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe and South Africa's Nelson Mandela in a show of united Southern African approval. In 1997, another conflict hit the region, the First Congo War. The MPLA joined it in a bid to oust Mobutu Sisi Soko, who in the past had supported UNITA. They were successful and Mobutu fled, with Zaire reorganising itself as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And hence it got that ridiculously long name. Right. In September 1999, the MPLA launched Operation Restore, a huge military offensive to take territory from UNITA. They were successful in taking many major cities. In order to decrease support for UNITA in the countryside, the MPLA forced people in rural areas to relocate to cities with dire humanitarian consequences. In May 2001, UNITA resorted to attacking civilians in a show of strength, a kind of we're still here move. They also started attacking UN food programme flights, claiming they were transporting government troops. This demonised them in the eyes of the international community even more. So, you know, by, by the end, UNITA... Yeah, the whole world thinks they're the bad guys. Shortly afterwards, on February 2nd, 2002, Savimbi was killed by MPLA troops. With Savimbi dead, the new UNITAR leaders entered into further talks. The Lusaka Protocols came into effect, UNITAR reorganised as a political party, and the war came to an end. The war still has a huge effect on Angola today. It left a generation that knew nothing other than war, four million people internally displaced, Millions of landmines scattered around the country and over half a million civilians dead. These days, Angola is exploiting its vast oil and mineral wealth. Its rate of growth is amongst the highest in the world, but it's grossly disproportionate. It's one of those ones where, you know, the top 1% of people own everything and everyone else has got nothing, basically. Oh, great. Love those countries. Yeah, afraid so. Yeah, Marxism and Leninism is uh, definitely out the window. The current president is Zhao Lusensao, who won the 2017 election after the retirement of Dos Santos, who had been in power for 38 years. Since the war, Angola has seen some rebuilding, including a new parliament building that cost $180 million. With the old order gone and the country at peace, the future actually looks quite bright for Angola. Let's just hope they do something about the income inequality, eh? Let's just hope there's a fair few places that do something about the income equality. Mm. But yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I see it absolutely. Recently, I've tried to tried to have a think if I could tie in your your history bits to an episode of The Simpsons, not necessarily the one that we're on, mm-hmm. because just in case anybody, um, I think I mentioned this earlier in our series in general, but I don't, and I deliberately don't find out what Tom's going to do until <laughs> we're sat in the room. And if I do find out, then I don't research it. Because I like learning about it. Mm. And also, if it's something I remember, I like to remember things as we go along. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, no. <laughs> I don't remember this. Uh, but I have found what I believe to be a Simpsons reference to Angola. Okay. So, get ready for this. In an episode called... Boy Meets Curl, which is the 12th episode of season 21. Okay. Marge and Homer take up curling for literally no apparent reason. Because it's a thing. And that curling takes them to a Winter Olympics. Right. Okay. The Winter Olympics has a ridiculously long opening ceremony where every country in the world essentially troops past. And as a joke, at the end of it, 
after they finally got through, I don't know, Zanzibar or something like that, everybody thinks the opening ceremony is over. But then they go, and now the country's observing rather than competing. <laughs> and it starts again from A. And Angola is one of the countries that is observing. Ah, okay. Well, it's just nice <sighs> to know that they... Nice to know that they acknowledge that Angola exists. Yes, yes. And with that, I think we're done. Don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now Spotify. Mm. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org, and check out the 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you.